Welcome to the Peavine Podcast, where each week we bring you the message from our Sunday morning worship service with Pastor Joel Sutherland. We take timeless biblical truth and help you to apply it in the context of your daily life. If you'd like to join us live at one of our campuses or stream one of our services online, go to peavine.org for times, locations, and more information. Thank you to all our worship teams at all of our campuses. Psalm 15, if you're joining us online, thank you for joining us online this morning. Our Rossville campus, our Dalton campus, it's great to see you there as well. Thank you so much for engaging with us, however you are. And uh, Psalm 15, I finished up a series last week. I'm going to start a series in a few weeks, but for a few sermons, I'm just going to do what I want to do, all right? I'm going to just preach some one-off non-series sermons. And this was a sermon uh, the Lord put on my heart, one of my favorite passages of scripture, Psalm chapter 15. And, And I want to preach on this this morning, how to know God or knowing God, how to get close to God, however you would like to say it. How do we know or how do we get close to God? Now, here, here's the truth. Here's maybe the problem. All of us want to be close to God. If you're here this morning, you are here. If you're watching this morning, you're watching because you want to be close to the Lord. Otherwise, you'd check out and not engage at all. So if you're, if you're engaged at all this morning, you, you, that's your problem. You want to be close to God. You want to be spiritual. I would even say this. You have a desire at a certain level to be godly, or you have a desire to, to feel his presence. Now, stay with me for just a moment. What we, what we really do, it's human nature. Here's what we do. We trick ourselves into thinking we are closer to God than what we really are. And so we're not above lying to ourselves. We're not above deluding ourselves. We're not above to um, uh, just misinforming ourselves about our relationship with God. But here's something I'll promise you. When you get to the end of your life, you're going to want to have lived a life in fellowship with God. It's going to have benefits later on in life. I'll show you that in just a moment. But not only that, it has benefits in this life right now. You feeling close to God matters. Research tells us, uh, tells us this, that feeling in sync with a higher power may be the secret for happiness in their later years. Research concludes that praying regularly Holding a strong belief in God improves the well-being of senior adults. Now, I'm I'm going somewhere with that in just a moment. Hold on to that thought. So who benefits the most from praying to a loving God? Study uh, authors say seniors who are suffering from declining health, age, discrimination, a loss of companionship, increased stress, and a loss of financial freedom could experience the greatest improvement in well-being. So here, here's, here's what they did. They, they studied it. Scientists at Baylor University in Texas analyzed data from more than a thousand respondents who were 65 or older and asked this question, does faith play an increasing role in how good we feel as we get over it? Here's what we found out, that the older you get, the more of a relationship with God you wish you had. So why, why are you telling us about senior adults? Well, I'm not just preaching to senior adults, but what I'm trying to tell you is, I'm trying to give you, if you're young, if you're 20 years old, I'm trying to tell you at the end of your life, this is what you want. At the end of your life, 
You want this close relationship with God because 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now, this is going to matter to you. And it doesn't happen automatically. Uh, Not only that, having a relationship with God matters even before then. Feeling connected to God is positively associated with psychological well-being, including, get this, lower levels of anxiety and depression. So when I develop my relationship with God right now, when I know God, I tend to have lower levels of anxiety and depression. Not only that, feeling close to God is associated with higher levels of marital satisfaction. Right? There's a reason Paul in Ephesians 5 uses the imagery of husband and wife in Christ in the church. When God is in our relationship, our marriage is more satisfying. Not only that, feeling close to God is associated with better relationships with others, including high levels of forgiveness and lower levels of conflict. And so knowing God, feeling close to God is going to matter early in life, in the middle of life, and at the end of life. Early in life, in the middle of life, at the end of life. But then that leads us to the problem I want to deal with today. First of all, the truth is, if you would be honest, you don't feel that close to God. The truth is the average Christian will go through the motions of the Christian life, but you don't really feel close to God. Hey, that, that's true for preachers, pastors, deacons, church members. You just don't really feel it. And the second problem becomes this. Not only do we not feel it, we really don't know how to get close. I mean, at, at the end of the day, if I were to nail you to the wall, And I were to say, tell me how you can get close to the Lord. The average Christian can't do it. The average Christian has no idea. The average pastor has no idea. And so we we, we plug in to the routine of Christianity, and we might alter our routine or make our routine better, but but we, we plug into the routine of Christianity, but yet we really don't know, know God. So how can we know God? How can we get close to God? How can we feel close to God? Here's what I want to do. I want to take us to a man this morning who um, was a man after God's own heart. I want to take us to a man this morning who has been where we want to go. After all, if I want to get closer to the Lord, I want to be taught by somebody who has been close to the Lord, but I also want to talk to someone who's been through the same struggles I've been through. So when you get to Psalm 15, 15, the very title of the Psalm says it was a Psalm of David. Now here's what we know about David. David was a man after God's own heart. And I want to say right off the bat, you cannot be a man after God's own heart and not feel close to the Lord, not know God. You read the story of David, it is uber obvious that David was close to the Lord, that David had a sensitive heart to God, that David knew the Lord. But yet this man who was a man after God's own heart, knew what victory in the Lord was like, knew what defeat in life was like, and his story mirrors ours to some degree. So what, did, what would David say? Stand with me as read, read Psalm 15. What would David say 
about knowing the Lord. He told us in Psalm 15 in five short verses. Look in Psalm 15, verse, and it's on the screen if you don't have your Bible. Psalm 15, verse 1. Lord, who can dwell in your tent? Lord, who can live on your holy mountain? Here's the answer. As a matter of fact, in the next four verses, 11 things are going to be talked about. I'm going to summarize them, but he mentions 11 things in the next four verses. He answers a question. He asks a question in verse one. He answers it in the rest of the chapter. So look in verse two, the one who lives blamelessly practices righteousness and acknowledges the, acknowledges the truth in his heart. One who does not slander with his tongue, who does not harm his friend or discredit his neighbor who despises the one rejected by the Lord, but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps his word, whatever the cost, who does not lend his silver at interest or take a bribe against the innocent. The one who does these things will never be shaken. Thank you. You may be seated. So Psalm 15 starts off with the question that I want to answer today. I want to do exactly what David did. I want to ask the question, and then I want to answer uh, uh, the question for you. He starts off in verse number one, and he asked two questions. And if you were in my Wednesday night class uh, uh, um, a few weeks ago, we talked about parallel, parallelism, parallel, parallel, parallelism, parallelism. Man, I'm a theologian of the best kind, right? Parallelism. We see parallelism in verse number one. He asked the same question two different ways twice. It's Hebrew poetry. And he says this, who can dwell in your tent? Now, you've got to get some, you've got to get a framework for who can dwell in your tent. He's not talking about a tent like you're going to camping. At this moment, he's talking about the tabernacle of God, the one built by Moses, the one where they worship. That is what David is talking about. It's a reference to the temple of God, which is now just the tabernacle of God. That is the mobile house of God. And David says this, who who can dwell in your tent? Now, he, he, the imagery he has in mind, in all probability, is that tabernacle of God. And even probably, David is talking about the Holy of Holies. You, you remember there were degrees of the tabernacle. There was the court of the Gentiles where uh, almost anyone could go. And then as you got closer in, finally, you got into the inner sanctum of the tabernacle. It was called the most holy place. There was the Holy of Holies. It's where the high priest would go one time a year, and there on the mercy seat of God, he would offer sin for sacrifices after he had already cleansed himself and offered sacrifices for sin. It was such a holy place that the glory of God, the Shekinah glory of God, dwelt in that holy, holy place. And if he went in with any impurity in his life, he would drop dead. They had a problem. Priests died in the holy place. So they started tying it, because if he dies in there, you can't go get him. So they start tying a rope around his ankle. So if they heard a thud, they just drug him out by the rope. It was such a holy place. The glory of God, the Shekinah glory of God descended on that place. It was the place that represented the most intimate communion with God possible. 
Now we're told in the New Testament that veil was torn in two from heaven down to earth. Uh, It was ripped by God from the top to the bottom, but it's still in their minds going forward. Even the New Testament church that dwell in your tabernacle. What he meant by that was who, who can be in such an intimate relationship with God? Who can be in such a holy vector with God that they feel close to him the way the high priest and the high priest only one time a year got to feel the intimacy with an almighty God who can dwell in your tent. He asked the same question again, who can live on your holy mountain? Well, what's he talking about? Who can live on your holy mountain? He's referring back to Moses at this point, I believe, that when Moses was with God himself, that it was obvious Moses had been with God. Uh, let, let me read these verses to you. It's in, uh, uh, who can dwell in your tent? Who can live your whole, it's Exodus 34. Look at these verses. As Moses descended from Mount Sinai, here, here's what we're talking about. With the two tablets of the testimony in his hands as he descended the mountain. Remember, God's own finger wrote the 10 commandments, the tablets of testimony. He did not realize that the skin of his face shone as a result of his speaking with the Lord. When Aaron and the Israelites saw Moses, the skin of his face shone. They were afraid to come near him. Moses called out to them, so Aaron and all the leaders of the community returned to him, and Moses spoke to them. Afterward, all the Israelites came near, and he commanded them to do everything the Lord had told him on Mount Sinai. So here's Moses who's coming down from Mount Sinai, and he's had such intimacy with God. It's all over his face. It's had such intimacy with God, they can't help but notice. The Bible tells us that the glory of God was on his face. Now look, you say, well, that's Old Testament. I can go to the New Testament as well. You remember in the New Testament, the book of Acts, they said about the apostles, it was evident they had been with Jesus. Why? Because the glory of God shone in their lives. Not only that, remember in the book of Acts, people would fall under the shadow of Peter, and Peter's shadow would heal them? How can that be possible? That is only possible because you have that intimacy with God, that you know God. And so the psalmist David comes along and said, who would like to know God that way? Who would like to have that kind of intimacy with the Lord, the kind of intimacy like with Moses, the prophet? Your face shone because the glory of God was in your life. Or like the high priest, you got to look at the Shekinah glory of God. At least that one time a year, those represented the most intimate, knowing relationships with God the world has ever known. And the psalmist David came along and said, but that can be you too. And hear me, Christian, that can be you too. That can be me too. The veil has been torn. And today you can have that same relationship with God. And it's not as difficult as you think. As a matter of fact, it, it is so not difficult. David could answer the, ask the question and in four verses give you the answer. 11 total commands in the Hebrew. 11 positive, 5 negative. And I can sum them all up, I think, with three categories. How can we know God? Let me give you three three things. Number one, if you want to know God, you must pursue God. 
Psalm 15, verse 2, the one who lives blamelessly practices righteousness and acknowledges the truth in his heart. Lives blamelessly practices righteousness and acknowledge the truth in his heart. In the Hebrew, that is seven words. Here's how I would sum up those seven words. I would sum them up like this. If you want to know God, you must be committed to pursuing a relationship with God. If you want to know God, you must be committed to pursuing a relationship with God. Seven words in the Hebrew, three participles. The three participles we see are are this, lives, practices, acknowledges. Lives, practices, acknowledge. They are in the present tense, which implies continuous action. The word lives there is often translated walk. It means a person's close pursuit of a relationship with God. Practices means to make or to construct. It's doing, it's doing, or it's practicing. Acknowledges means to saturate. It's filling your mind with God, filling your heart with God. All three of these things add up to one simple thing. Here it is. If you want a personal relationship with God, you must pursue a personal, close relationship with God. And we don't really do this. We don't really do this. We almost feel like a close relationship with God is going to happen by accident or osmosis. Right? You, you remember osmosis from high school science probably? If I just get around it, it'll seep in. If I come to church enough, it'll seep in. Now, coming to church is all part of it, but it's not going to happen just because you come to church. It's going to be lives, practices, acknowledge. That is, I've got to Walk in a pursuit of God. I've got to daily reach out to God. I've got to saturate my life with the things of God. And most of us are sitting around hoping it happens. But David said, I'll give you my own personal testimony. You need to have a daily walk that is saturating your life with God. Here's what I mean. If you want a relationship with God, then you've got to go get a relationship with God. You've got to pursue a relationship with God. You've got to go after a relationship with God because if you don't go after it, it will not happen. You've heard me so much talk about my my relationship with my wife when we first met. When we first met, I was 16, almost 17. She was 15, almost 16. Her mom interviewed me in the uh, ShopRite grocery store, aisle number 11, I think it was, frozen foods. And she asked me all kinds of questions about what kind of grades did I make? Did I go to church? Who were my parents? All this stuff. Sherry and I didn't go to the same high school. We were both in high school and uh, my junior year, her sophomore, but but we didn't go to the same high school. And so we didn't have a chance to really know each other that way. Her mom interviewed me, you know, said, I'm going to bring my um, uh, daughter, my my daughter's beautiful. I'm going to bring her back next week. You know, you know, daughter beautiful. Sure. Uh Uh-huh. All, everybody's baby's pretty to them. We know better, but you know, I, I, but, but I saw her from the back room, you know, I saw her from the back room. You've heard me say this and, uh, and I'm like, I'm, I'm all, I am in on this uh, right here, man. I mean, I grabbed a broom. I swept shop right 
grocery store as clean as it's ever been swept in its life. Her mom would literally take three hours to buy groceries just to give us time to hang out on a Friday night, which was pretty cool. But her dad had one rule. Her dad was a, a, a strict Baptist pastor, and I mean strict Baptist pastor. She was only allowed to date one time a week when she turned 16 years old, and anything counted as a date. Any activity between us two uh, alone counted as a date. I drove her to, we baptized in a creek. I drove her to a baptism service one Sunday. It was our date. And I said, I'll never, ever waste a date at a baptism as long as I live. Like that's not a date and I'm not going to do that. But, but I had to get creative because here's why I didn't want to let this girl go. I'd outpunted my coverage just when she looked at me. I knew I was out of my league. And so I just had to make this happen. And so, you know what I did? I went in an all out pursuit of her. I got as godly as a 16-year-old boy, I got religion all, was godly is probably not the right word. I got religion as much as a 16-year-old boy could get religion. Her dad was a Baptist pastor. We went to church pretty regularly, but not real regularly. Uh, my family did, but it didn't matter to me. I started going to church. Man, I started, I'd never been to Sunday school since I was nine years old, but at 16, I started going to Sunday school and hanging out with her. I'd go to Sunday morning church because these didn't count as dates because there's a room full of people around us. I'd get there early. I'd stay late. I'd go to Sunday night church. I'd get there early and stay late. I'd go to, and that's, by the way, that's why you can't find, uh, why you can't find a husband or wife now because we don't have Sunday night church. That's when the magic happened back in the day. And, and I'd go to Wednesday night church. I'd get there early and I'd stay late. I'd demand Wednesday night. I used to work every Wednesday night, but I got religion demanded every Wednesday night off. So I'd go to church, man, in the middle of the week. I mean, I just had religion, but that wasn't enough. They had, they had visitation on Monday nights where you'd go out and knock on doors. I'd never knocked on a door in my life. I was terrified to do that, but I got religion. I showed up on Monday nights. And the cool thing about it was that, um, um, they met at her house. So I'd get there real early and I'd say, Oh, it, this, this started at six 30. I, I had three 30 in my mind for some reason. I, I don't know why I just be there early, man. I'd make sure I rode with one of the other men and that way they had to bring me back to her house and uh, I, I'd get there late and we'd talk and I'd just take advantage of everything. We only got one day a week, but man, I, I, I use God as my excuse and church as my excuse for all the contact. I'd write her notes. And I'd drive by her house and she'd be looking out the window because if I pulled in the driveway, it was a date and I wouldn't pull in the driveway. But I'd drive by and I'd wave at her and I'd put it in a note in her mailbox and I'd go by after ShopRite and I'd get a note and, and she'd written me one. And I'd get it out of the mailbox and I'd call her. We dated for four and a half years and these were no cell phone days. Hear me, there was no such thing as a cell phone. Nobody even thought about a cell phone in 1985. But I'd call her from a nasty old germ-ridden pay phone. It's a wonder I'm alive today. Every day of my life, I never missed a day calling her from a payphone while we were dating. Even in the snow, where the phone literally stuck to the side of my face. I stopped and called her after college one night about 9.30 at night and talked to her. I was in an absolute, she didn't, I'm not even sure she liked me. I just think she gave up. <laughs> she just gave up. You'd call the police on somebody like that today, but I got a wife out of it. Because I was in an all out pursuit 
of a relationship with her. That's how you get to know someone, by the way, and it's absolutely no different with God. That's how you know God. You are in an all-out pursuit of a relationship with God. It's not just Psalms that tells us that. For example, 1 Chronicles 16, 11, seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his face always. Again, we're told, be in a constant pursuit of God. How about this one? Beautiful verse, Proverbs 8, 17. I love those who love me and those who search for me, find me. How about this one? Psalm 63, 1, God, you are my God. I eagerly seek you. I thirst for you. My body paints for you in a land that is dry, desolate, without water. Listen, ladies and gentlemen, we have never been in a more dry, desolate, without water culture than we are in today. And the psalmist said what you should do is be in an all-out pursuit of a relationship with God. Psalm 119, how happy are those whose way is blameless, who walk according to the Lord's instructions. Happy are those who keep his decrees and seek him with all their heart. Seek him with all your heart. Listen, if you want to know God this morning, that's how you get to know God. You have to want to know him. You have to pursue him. You've got to get in your Bible and dig through this Bible and say, God, show me you. God, draw me close to you. God, teach me about you. An all-out pursuit of knowing God. You've got to get into church and you've got to say to God, show me something about you today. Teach me something about you today. Let the sermon be right for me. Let the music be right for me. Let the small group lesson be right for me. You got to get on your knees in prayer and you got to say, God, I'm praying for one thing, not so you'll answer my prayer, but so that I'll know you. How much are you in pursuit of God? How much is your body fainting for a relationship with God? How dry is your soul for a walk and and relationship and a knowledge and an intimacy with the holy God? Listen, the reason we aren't close to God is what we'd like to be is we really don't want it enough. I mean, we want a relationship with God if it's easy, right? We want a relationship with God if it's osmosis, it just creeps in. I'm not going to read my Bible, but I'm going to hold it close. Maybe some of it will rub off on me. I mean, we, we, we want a pursuit of God as long as God's given us everything we want in life. And David said, no, you want a relationship with God? It's at balls in your court. An all-out pursuit of God. Second thing he tells us about being in an intimate relationship with God. First of all, you've got to pursue him. Second of all, you must treat people well. Now, some of you are like, well, what, what does this have to do with the relationship with God? God is very concerned that if you want to be right with him, you must be right with others. So look, look at what he says um, uh, in, in verse number three. He said, and those who uh, do not slander with his tongue, who does not harm his friend or discredit his neighbor. Those are multiple uh, commands on how to treat people rightly. Uh, uh, So so he says this. He he says, uh, first of all, 
He says, uh, somebody that does not slander. I was reading commentaries last night, just looking over this. Somebody said that the Hebrew word can be translated, don't trip over your tongue. And I thought that's good imagery for me to know. Don't slander, don't gossip. The New Testament would say, speak evil of no one. That you do not harm anybody else. What kind of harm are we talking about? Physical, emotional, mental, spiritual harm. Does not discredit, speak evil of anybody at all. Listen, the Bible is abundantly clear. To be right with God, you must be right with people as well. So many times we want to say, well, I'm right with God, but man, I'm, I'm mad at so-and-so. I'm holding a grudge against so-and-so. Listen, your relationship with God is as much about other people as it is about him. Christianity does not work in a vacuum where you can say, I'm going to go be a monk in a cave and I'm going to be right with God, but wrong with everybody else. I don't really care. No, that's not how Christianity works. As a matter of fact, in the New Testament, we can jump over there where Jesus said, if you bring your gift to the altar and you discover in your heart you're not right with somebody else, you first go be reconciled with your brother and then come back and worship. Because being right with God is also about being right with other people. And here's what that means. I, I, listen, you know this, but let me say it. Everybody you know, Jesus loves. The person you don't love, Jesus still does. Everybody you know, Jesus died for. And by the way, if they'd have been the only person to ever have been saved, Jesus would have still died for that person. And everybody you know, Jesus wants to spend eternity with. And you're, you're like, I, I don't want to be in an elevator with them. Right? But Jesus wants to spend eternity with them. You know why? Because Jesus seeing the potential of who they can be one day in heaven, redeemed, not just who they are right now. And if I'm going to be in a right relationship with God and dwell in his presence, I'm going to have to learn to treat people well, listen, even if I don't want to. Even if I don't want to. Have you ever been around somebody that just, I don't, I don't know how to word this just annoyed you for no reason. Some people just have that vibe, right? Just have that vibe. You just, they, they annoy you for no reason whatsoever. Like you can't pinpoint it. You just don't, it's not that you don't like them. You don't even want to be close enough to know you don't like them. You just don't want to be around them. You see them coming, you want to go the other way. And you know what? That's, a, that's actually a thing. It, and listen, I have good news for you. It's not you, it's them. It really is. It's not you with them. It, it is called negative affect presence. Some people have what's called negative affect presence. What is that? It's a social phenomenon characterized by individuals who evoke negative emotions in others, causing annoyance or discomfort, and we don't know why. We don't know why. This can, be, this can manifest in various ways, such as through negative comments, behaviors, or attitude towards others. Individuals with high levels of negative affect presence may find it difficult to establish and maintain a uh, positive relationships with others as their behaviors and attitudes may be perceived as annoying, intrusive, and disrespectful. It's not saying that they're annoying, intrusive, and disrespectful. 
Just everybody views them that way. Do you know what? You, you have people in your life that have the disease of negative affect presence. And if you don't, it's you. <laughs> On the flip side, there's positive affect presence. And I, I don't even have to describe it to you. It's the exact opposite. It's people you want to be around and you don't really know why. Right? Do you know what? You, you have people in your life that have... Like, they just annoy you. You don't like them. They just get on your nerves. They've never done anything to you. And you go from the people I don't even like and I don't know why to the people I don't like and I do know why. But here's the problem. If you want to be close to God, you can't live that way. If you want to be close to God, you must treat others well. Because how go your, your relationship with others is how goes your relationship with God. I could do this all day long, by the way, out of the Bible. Do, I'm going to do what I'm doing right now all day long. Let me show you a few verses. Luke 6, 31. Just as you want others to do for you, do the same for them. Right? The golden rule. Whatever you want others to do for you, you do for them. You, this is how Jesus wants you to treat people, by the way. How about this? Philippians 2, 4. Everyone should look not to his own interest, but rather to the interest of others. How about this one? Uh, Matthew 5, 43, words of Jesus, Sermon on the Mount. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Listen, over and over again, we could do this all morning long. If you want to be right with God and know God, treat others well. That means treat your family well. That means treat your friends well. Hey, that means treat your enemies well. That means treat your coworkers well. Even when they're doing you wrong, even when they're on your nerves, even when they're bothering you, treat others well. That is the mark of true Christianity and of really knowing Jesus. When you're labeled to love your enemies and treat others well, when you give them the benefit of a doubt, when you love them the spite of their problems, treat people well. Number three, this sermon's taking too long, but number three, Third thing you want to do to be close to God, number three, is live holy. Live holy. Verses four and five. Who knows God? The one who despises the one rejected by the Lord, but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps his word whatever the cost, who does not lend silver at interest or take a bribe against the innocent. The one who does these things will never be shaken. All of those commands are admonitions to stay away from sin. We could sum it up. We could sum up those two verses a little bit like this. It's not poetic, just rubber meets the road. Here's what he's saying. Number one, stay away from sinners. You want to live a holy life, you've got to stay away from sinners. Uh, you're, you're not, you, you say, well, I'm trying to reach them. That's awesome. Try to reach them, but don't get involved in their stuff. He said, number two, hang out with the righteous. Avoid sinners. Hang out with the righteous. 
you keep your word no matter what. Now that's interesting. I cannot tell from the context exactly what this is saying. It may be talking about your personal integrity. It also may be talking about you keeping the word of God no matter what, which would be a very interesting translation. And honesty, integrity in all your business dealings. So maybe we could sum it all up like this. Here's what God is saying about living holy. The pattern of a godly life. That wasn't meant to be an exhaustive list, right? That's not everything it requires to live holy. It was meant to show a pattern of life. And so if I wanted to sum up what he's trying to say in verses four and five, the pattern of life God is looking for is this, avoid evils and evildoers, living righteous and loving the righteous. Avoid evil and evildoers, living righteous and loving righteous. Too many Christians want to do everything right, but this, we'll read our Bibles, we'll come to church, we'll pray, we'll be nice to others, we'll give, but we're not going to give up our sin. And we love to claim a closer relationship with God, but if our lives don't have a pattern of consistent holiness, you aren't doing it correctly. A pattern of consistent holiness. Avoiding sin and sin doers. Living righteously, loving the righteous. Somewhere along the line, this breaks down and it becomes too much commitment. But if you want to know God, you must live holy. Close your Bibles and I'm finished. How many of you love this game? Let me see here. You love this game? Monopoly? Anybody love the game? I hate this game with all of my heart. I hate it. Sherry loves to play Monopoly. I hate it. It just takes a week to play a game. I, I just don't like it. It's not my thing. Um, I, I'm, I'm going to go somewhere with this in a minute, but I thought, I, I thought, um, I thought, well, let me find some interesting Monopoly stats. They don't have anything to do with the sermon. I'll get to the sermon part in a minute. But did you know Monopoly, um, they have produced over 5 billion little green houses since the game was first produced in 1935. Did you know that the total amount of money in a standard Monopoly game is $15,140? That's how much is in your tray. The most landed on space, write this down, are Illinois Avenue and B&O Railroad and Go. Somebody take a picture of that because next time you play Monopoly, this is what you need to own. Don't say I didn't tell you. Don't ask me later on, this is your chance. You can go back and watch the whole sermon, all right? You have a 64% chance of landing on one of the railroads each time you go around the board. So again, uh, uh, good to know. And more Monopoly money is printed every year than real U.S. dollars. More Monopoly money. That's not why I'm telling you all this. That's just interesting facts. Did you know that you're playing Monopoly wrong? You probably are playing Monopoly wrong. Do you know, we play it so wrong. The other day, they had to put out misconceptions about the rules of Monopoly. For example, did you know this? Free parking does nothing. There's no treasure chest. There's no pay fines here. When you land on free parking, you know what you're supposed to do there? Park. That's it. Not only that, this is not a rule. You don't have to wait once around the board to buy any properties. How many of you play it that way? That's how we play it. Got to go around, get past go. 
That's not how it works. First thing you land on, you can buy. Did you know this about Monopoly? Anytime a player lands on an available property and chooses not to buy it, every player is supposed to be able to place a bid on the property. One reason it takes all week to play the game is we're not doing it right. We think you can't buy it until you land on it. It's not true. If somebody buys it, I don't know why I'm preaching about Monopoly. Calm down, Joel. Anyway, if you land on a property and... uh, Um, if you land on a property and you don't want to buy it, then it goes up for bid and it's bought. So, I mean, basically one time around the board and everything on the property is bought, it'd go so much faster. All right, let me, let me slow down. I'm going to say my, I got some preach left in me. I just need to save it. All right. If you land on go, like directly, you don't get $400. Some people play it that way. You're not allowed to give out loans to other players. Get this. You are allowed to buy and sell when you're in jail. You can operate just like you want to in jail. The rules don't say anything else. And get this, you don't collect rent if you don't ask for it before the next throw. So if somebody lands on your Illinois Avenue and you're, you're, you're jabbering and you don't notice it and the next person rolls, you don't, that person doesn't owe you rent. And here's what, here's what they said. The vast majority of people are playing the game wrong. You're violating one or more of those rules I just put up on the board. So so here's the truth. Here's what the article said. Most people are playing a version of Monopoly, but not the real thing. And that's what we're doing with God. It's a version of knowing God but it's not the real thing. The version we play leaves out holiness. The version we play leaves out godliness. The version we play leaves out obedience to the word. It's spiritual, but not saved. It's helpful, but not holy. It's better, but not biblical. It's soothing, but not sanctifying. It's comforting, but not convicting. If you wanna really know Jesus, You must live holy. You must pursue him with all your heart. You must treat people well. And you must live holy. Thank you, Pastor Joel, for that that great message and that challenge uh, to us. Um, Man, if, if we want to be with God, if we want to have that relationship with him, if we want to dwell in the presence of God, there's some things that we need to do. And maybe God has spoken to your heart and you just need to have a time of confession or a time of prayer uh, with God right where you are. Or maybe you've never put your faith and trust in Christ. There's no way that you can accomplish any of the things that Pastor Joel talked about in his sermon today without first making Jesus the Lord and Savior of your life. It begins with you understanding that you're a sinner. You've got to be willing to admit that you're a sinner. You've got to believe that Jesus died on the cross, that he was buried, and on the third day he rose again. it's, It's what every Sunday is all about in the life of the believer. And then you have to confess Him as your personal Lord and Savior. If God has spoken to your heart, and today you need to give Him your heart and life, simply tell God this, Lord, I know I'm a sinner, 
and I'm sorry for my sin. I believe that Jesus died on the cross, that He was buried, and that He rose again on the third day. Right now, I ask you to come into my heart through the power of your Holy Spirit. Take away my sin. Be my Savior. Lord, I give my life to you in Jesus' name. If you prayed that prayer for the first time this morning, we want to say welcome to the family. We want to celebrate that with you. And we want to help you take next steps on your faith journey with Jesus. And so, we've just dropped a link in the chat box that says, I commit my life to Christ. Click on that. Give us the information that it asked for, and we're going to connect with you this week. It's been incredible to worship together online this morning. Um, I look forward to this each week, and uh, just want to say God bless you. Have a great week, and we'll see you next week. We hope that you've enjoyed the message this week as we help equip you to apply God's Word to your daily life. For the latest updates about what's happening around Peavine City, be sure to connect with us on social media. For more information about Peavine, to get in touch with us or check out one of our services, visit us at peavine.org. Thanks for listening.